This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. We have heard for quite a while that a woman's biological clock can have an impact in the workplace. But does it have an impact when thinking about dating and or marriage? New research estimates that a woman must earn an extra $7,000 per year for every year a woman ages in order to remain equally uh, equally uh, in connection with romantic partners. Corinne Lowe is an assistant professor of business economics and public policy and the author of this research, and she joins us with more on this. Hi, Corinne. How are you? Great to have you back on the show. I'm good, Dan. Great to be back. Thank you. And so let's dig into this because one of the important topics you uh, terms, I guess I should say, you use is this of reproductive capital. Take us a little bit into this. Yeah, so I coined the term reproductive capital because I wanted to talk about the economic value of women's fertility. And so I think it's really important when we talk about these decisions and the trade-off that women makes between career and family, so often we're putting it in terms of personal decisions and kind of taking it outside of the domain of economics. But my research shows that, you know, families everywhere value having children. It's something that people spend a lot of money on. It's something that people will sacrifice a lot to achieve if it's not, you know, naturally possible for them. And so this was something of economic importance to them. And therefore, it was a form of human capital, this reproductive capital, the ability to have children. And it's a form of capital that depreciates because women's fertility is naturally time limited, more so than men's is. And that creates an inherent trade-off between a woman's human capital investments, which take time, such as by going to school or being on the partner track at a law firm, and her reproductive capital, which depreciates with time. So the the older that a woman gets, and kind of in that in that spectrum of being able to to have children, the impact that they deal with will increase uh, annually. It seems like. Yeah. So the way I did this research is I randomly assigned ages and incomes to dating profiles, and what I found is that both men and women value people who are higher income. That makes sense. That's kind of contributing to your overall family income, but. Women did not penalize men for being older, whereas men did penalize women for being older. And so for each year that a woman was older, and these were um, ages that were randomly assigned between 30 and 40, so we're talking about aging between 30 and 40. And for each year that a woman was older, the man's rating of that profile would decrease. And because I also randomly assigned income, I could say what that meant in terms of dollars. And the conversion was that for each year that she aged, she would have to earn another $7,000 annually to be receiving the same rating on the dating or on the marriage market. And my research leads me to believe that this is due to depreciating reproductive capital or declining fertility with age because this present, this, um, penalty was driven by men who did not already have children and who wanted yeah. to get married, wanted to have children, and who were aware that fertility did decline during these ages. You also, and there's a component in the research that you did that also looks at the level of education and how that can impact some of these decisions as well, whether or not you have a graduate level education or uh, uh, your uh, regular, your BA or your BS. Yeah, exactly. So given that there's this trade-off between income and age that I saw in that first study that I told you about, 
Well, I was really interested in studying the impact of human capital investments, such as pursuing a graduate degree, because that impacts both factors. It's going to mean that you're going to earn more, and that's why you might be making that investment. But it's also going to mean that you're probably going to be older by the time you're on the marriage market and ready to have kids. And so what I looked at is I looked at data over the past, you know, um, 80 years or so. And what I found was that until the um, 2000s, so throughout the 20th century, a woman with a graduate degree actually married a poorer spouse than a woman with a college degree. And that's pretty surprising because typically in the data we see something called assortative matching, which means that people who are higher income marry people who are higher income. And women with graduate degrees do earn more than women with college degrees, and that they were marrying poorer men than women with college degrees. And um, my research hypothesizes that this is due to the reproductive capital trade-off. Yes, they're earning more, but it's also delaying marriage, and they do have smaller family sizes. Now, when we come into the 21st century and the data in the 2000s, we see this trend start to reverse. We see that women with graduate degrees do start marrying richer men than women with college degrees. And um, my explanation for this is that the American family size has shrunk substantially over the past 40 years. And so if you want four children, then getting a graduate degree is going to actually really interfere with your fertility. It's going to have a big cost in terms of reproductive capital. But in a family that wants just two children, there's not going to be as big of a trade-off. And that's exactly what we see. What's changed in the 21st century as opposed to the 20th century is that family sizes for women with college degrees have come down so that women with graduate degrees are no longer at such a big disadvantage in terms of reproductive capital. And so there's less of that trade-off that's happening there. So certainly aging still impacts women negatively, and that's what I described in my first study. And so, you know, investments beyond a graduate degree, they're still going to affect women. The fact that we have... um, that you get an MD and then you have to do the residency and then you have to do the fellowship. The fact that you get a law degree and then you have to do the partner track. Those investments are very time costly to women. But it was interesting that at least for getting a graduate degree, the trend had started to improve as we get into these later years. Right. And it's not only just the the having of fewer kids, but just the the general pattern we've seen of, of many people waiting longer to get married in the first place because they are they are going after that career first. Yeah, exactly. And so in some ways, that's maybe leveling the playing field a little bit between, you know, women with college degrees and women with graduate degrees. But I think that is one of my big policy recommendations coming out of this research is that there are ways to make these trade-offs less stark. So when you think about it in economic terms, when you think about these trade-offs in terms of maximizing the value of reproductive capital and human capital, well, our goal in society should be that people can do both and they can really maximize the value of both of those very valuable assets. And the way we do that is by creating more flexibility, you know, in terms of being able to do both of these things at the same time. And that's something that is going to serve both male and female workers, because that traditional model of, you know, the man who's just going to be able to spend 80 hours in the office because he has somebody, you know, at home who's taking care of all of the other dimensions of life that are very, very uh, time consuming. That's not really the model that American workers are facing today. You know, we increasingly have two income households, two full-time workers. And so everybody needs to actually engage in and take up some of this caregiving labor, which is quite time consuming and becoming more time consuming. So that's my first policy recommendation is figure out a way for all employees to actually do this type of caregiving labor so that we don't need to have this big trade-off. 
But my second recommendation is to really think about the timing of those investments and the fact that women's salaries tend to grow the steepest or just salaries in general tend to grow the steepest in um, people's 30s, which is the same time when women's reproductive capital is depreciating most steeply. And so asking ourselves, can we rethink flexibility to mean flexibility across the life cycle and not just flexibility during the workday? So is there a reason why women can't make some of these intense time-consuming investments later in life in their 40s, maybe after their kids are already in full-time childcare or school, and therefore be able to have very successful, high-performing careers um, that start with these investments a little bit later in life. And so figuring out ways, if because reproductive capital, that timing of that depreciation, it can be shifted a little bit by technology, but it cannot be entirely shifted. We can't move the period in our lives where we're going to have children to our 60s or our 70s. So instead, what we need to do is think about flexibility in these periods of intense investment where we kind of have this life cycle calendar that was built around men's needs and needs to adjust to a world where we have really high labor force participation from women and where companies are increasingly interested in attracting and retaining top female talent. And the way you do that is by by lessening the conflict between human capital and reproductive capital so that women can do both. And so that recognition, I would imagine, is is a is probably a little bit of a challenging one to to break through. But it, it, I, you kind of allude to that this to a degree becomes a, a little bit of a policy discussion as well, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's a discussion that, you know, we need to be having and we need to be having in economic terms. And that's why it was so important for me to do this research is that, you know, I think for too long we thought of this as just a problem for women, a personal problem that they need to resolve for themselves. Oh, what are, what are you going to do about the biological clock? But it's actually a problem for society because we need those women also maximizing their human capital. We need their ideas. We need their innovation. And so if we are losing them because there's such there's a stark trade-off between reproductive capital, which is economically valuable, and human capital, then society as a whole is losing out. And so if we shift the discussion back into economic terms and we say, all right, these, there are these two forms of capital that both produce things that we value in society. Our human capital, you know, we're getting rewards for that on the market, but reproductive capital is something that people value as well, and it's something that women get economic returns to on the marriage market, as I demonstrated through that, you know, $7,000 a year trade-off. Yeah. So in those terms, then we need to create policies that actually allow us to maximize the value of both of these assets, and that applies at the government level in terms of thinking how do we want to create less of a trade-off by, you know, it could be subsidizing child care, it could be subsidizing assisted reproductive technologies, but it also applies at the firm level when firms are saying, gosh, we don't know why the talented women that we recruit keep leaving. Well, this is the reason, this is the economics, and there are things that you can do about it. And as we've 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 learned significantly in the last few years, uh, the the cost of, of a lost employee in terms of leaving for another company, because you know maybe part of the decision is is that they don't have that flexibility, the cost to the company itself is a significant one that they can avoid by potentially you know easing some of these policy concerns. Exactly, and so you know you 
it, we're putting so much effort into the diversity side of recruitment. And, you know, what I always tell firms is that, well, you can't just practice diversity. You have to practice inclusion as well. And this is part of that inclusion yeah. side is, all right, you've gotten those talented women. You've recruited them straight out of business school. They've joined your companies. Well, now what are you going to do to make sure that they can stay and they can maximize their careers? And you're not making them choose between these two valuable assets that they hold, one of which is depreciating and it's depreciating on a schedule that can't really be changed and so if something has to move it's going to need to be the schedule for their career growth and that's something that we can rethink and we just haven't pushed ourselves to do that yet because in an economy where the high-powered workers and those in the c-suite were mostly men we didn't need to but that's not the reality and that's not today and that's not the future and so it's time to rethink the timing of these career investments and give women that true flexibility to allow them to maximize their reproductive and human capital and again we're talking about a a a time window of what like 15 to 20 years in general i mean it it may it may vary you know depending on the individual but in general we're talking about a a time frame of, of 15 to 20 years or so that we're looking at here Yeah, so that window for women to have kids, you know, like I said, it's a fixed window, and, um, you know, most women tend to delay until after they finish their education, um, and then that's when people want to start their families, and if they delay longer, they have, there's serious risks involved to that. There's the risk of actually not being able to have children. There's, you know, physical risks to the the mother and the baby, so that's not really, I think, the solution is to, you know, push women to delay longer. I think the solution is to say, all right, this is something that has to happen in your 30s. There are ways to accommodate that window and not put you on the, quote, mommy track, but instead say you can still be that high-powered person who's going to make intense investments, and we're just going to shift them around so that you're able to get back into the fast lane um, when it's no longer in conflict with that other very important need to reproduce, which is also, again, economically valuable. Have you started to to hear uh, off of this research uh, any feedback in terms of the mindset? Because this is something that I think it's probably going to grab the attention of a lot of people all kind of across the business landscape as we move forward here. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this research is that, you know, I, I feel like sometimes the reaction is like, oh, that's so, so depressing, like that these trade-offs exist for, for women. But I think what I actually hear from a lot of women is that they feel seen and recognized by this research because they say, I always knew that those trade-offs were, were real, but I felt like it was, you know, my fault or my problem to kind of deal with this and kind of hearing that these are real economic trade-offs, um, that makes me feel like I'm, you know, like I'm not so crazy and not being gaslit by society that I just have to juggle it all and have to kind of figure it out for myself. Um, I'll never forget that when I was thinking about applying to grad school, but I I actually worked at McKinsey before I went to grad school, one of my mentors said to me like, oh no, but if you're going to work before grad school, you know, that's going to be two years and then grad school is going to be six years and then you're going to have to do a postdoc and then you're going to do the tenure track. You're never going to have kids. And yeah. you know, that was a, a female advisor. And so, you know, there I was, you know, a, a 21-year-old woman just starting out on my career and this trade-off <laughs> was already so stark for me. And so women have long known that this trade-off is real and it's long been something that we've wrestled with and we've talked about. And so what I hope this research does is, as I said, put this 
um, discussion back into the domain of economics so that firms and policymakers treat it with the same seriousness that women have been treating it with the whole time, and we start to come up with some real solutions. 21 years of age, and they're throwing pianos on your back already before you can even get your feet off the ground, right? But that is the reality that women face. We are thinking about this time horizon the same way that, you know, a 30-year-old worker is thinking about retirement and you're kind of planning your financial future. Women know that this depreciation of reproductive capital is something that we face and it's something that we have to plan around. And so, you know, I'm I think that that reality has been there for us for a long time, and I really want to recognize that and say, you're not crazy. You're not alone. These economic trade-offs are real, and what you're trying to do is maximize the value of two assets, and you're doing an economic optimization the same way we think people are when they plan for retirement. Corinne, great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for your time. All the best. Thanks so much, Dan. Always a pleasure. You got a Corinne Lowe, who's an assistant professor of business economics and public policy here at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.